Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Misery Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, June 25th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 1 to 10. The Lord shows Jeremiah a vision of two baskets of figs in order to proclaim his word of hope and condemnation to the people of Judah. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Tim Stork. Pastor Stork serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield, Michigan. Pastor Stork, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. It's good to be back with you. So our context this morning is set out for us in the text. In the, I'll just read a little bit of the first verse. Uh, Jeremiah okay. chapter 24, verse 1 says, After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon had taken into exile from Jerusalem Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon. So Jeremiah actually tells us what the historical context of this text is, which he doesn't always do in every particular chapter, but we get it here. And this is one of those parts of the Old Testament that sometimes is, is a little hazy for folks. So let's let's make sure we have that historical context. What time period are we talking about for chapter 24? What are the events? Where can we find that in scripture? Take us into that, Pastor Stork. Okay. Well, as you said, um, this is one of the places in Jeremiah where he actually gives us a good sense of when, when things are taking place. Um, Historically, we are looking at about 597 B.C., um, give or take a year or two on either side, depending on the calendar that you're looking at. Um, We know exactly who is reigning at this point in time. Um, We know that Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. We also know that... um, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, is the king of Judah. Um, And if we wanted to know more about that, we could very easily look to 2 Kings chapter 24, um, where we find out a few more details about Jehoiakim um, and Jerusalem being captured. Um, We find out that Jehoiakim is 18 years old when he becomes king. Um, Following after his father Jehoiakim, um, who reigned for a number number of years, and actually the the writer of Chronicles tells us as well that Jehoiachin reigns exactly three months and ten days. Um, So, we find out as well who his mother is. His mother's name was Nehusha, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And we also learned that what Jehoiachin did was also evil in the sight of the Lord, just as his father had done previously. Um, and so we find out, like I said, a little bit about the details of Jehoiachin. 
And then the writer of Second Kings then goes on to talk about Jerusalem being captured. Um, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar sends his servants to Jerusalem to carry off all the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king's house, and then they also carries off a large amount of Jehoiachin's um, leaders and the officials and his own family to take them to Babylon. So just to, to help us keep things clear, because this is one of those kings that gets a couple of different names. In verse 1 of Jeremiah 24, he's called Jeconiah. He's also called just Kaniah in other places. And as you were, you were giving his name, his other name is Jehoiachin, which is, of course, distinct from his father, who reigned before him, who is Jehoiakim. So, so again, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you got to be careful with the consonants here. Or we'll, we'll get the wrong king. And, and keeping, keeping them straight is, is sometimes a challenge. What's interesting about this particular king, Jeconiah Jehoiachin, of course, Jeremiah is prophet during his reign, which, as you said, is, is quite short, only, what, three months, 10 days. He doesn't, Jehoiachin Jeconiah, doesn't actually get mentioned in the introductory part of Jeremiah, all the way back in, in Jeremiah chapter one, his reign is so short, it actually gets skipped over at that point. Uh, but it is a part of Jeremiah's ministry. As you said, we're in 597 BC after, and this is what he's two Kings removed from Josiah. That's when, when Jeremiah gets called during the reign of King Josiah. After Josiah comes Jehoiakim and then comes Jehoiachin. And that's the, the King that we're talking about. And as you said, he gets taken into exile about 597 BC. Again, yeah, like you said, give or take a few years, depending on the the calendar that you're using. Now, he this is so that's the the context. He's he's not a good king, as as we know. None of the kings after Josiah are are good. They don't do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, as as the writer of Second Kings tells us. But this is, and this is something maybe we should emphasize as well, when we, we talk about the exile, there are actually multiple exiles. So this is probably really the, the first big exile that happens during these waning years of the kingdom of Judah, right? Yes. So what, what and just to, again, to try to, because we're going to get a little bit more context as the text continues, we're going to hear about Zedekiah, another, actually, Zedekiah is the king that comes right after Jehoiachin, is that correct? Yes. Um, we actually find out, again, the writer of Second Kings tells us that Zedekiah is actually Jehoiachin's uncle. Okay. So what, what happens then with, with Zedekiah? Take us, again, and I, I know this will come up as we go through the text, but just to lay out the history, because I think that'll help as we, we get into what the vision that Jeremiah sees and how the Lord explains it. From 597, when Jehoiachin is taken into Babylon in this first exile, along with those leaders, then Zedekiah gets set up as king. How does the history progress there through the end of Judah and Jerusalem and even a little bit into the exile because we, we know a little bit about what happens to Jehoiachin there in Babylon. Take us take us that far. Yeah. So going back again to, to Second Kings, it's a wonderful place for us to get our historical bearings. We find out after Jehoiachin and his mother and the princes and the other officials and many of the soldiers and artisans are taken away into exile. Um, 
Zedekiah is put into place by Nebuchadnezzar um, to rule over Ju- Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah is actually not that much older than Jehoiachin. Um, we find out that in 2 Kings chapter 24, Zedekiah was only 20 year, 21 years old when he became king. And we find out that he reigns in Jerusalem for 11 years. Um, and again, he does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, according to all that Jehoiakim had done before. Um, and the, again, the writer of Second Kings tells us that it's because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah then rebelled against the king of Babylon. So then we find out, continuing on in Second Kings, um, that in the ninth year, of Zedekiah's reign in the 10th month, on the 10th day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar um, came with all of his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Um, They came um, and laid siege to the city. There was a breach that was made on the city wall. Um, The men of war fled by night, trying to get away. Unfortunately, the army of the Chaldeans pursued Zedekiah. They overtook him. Um, They captured him. They brought him up to the king of Babylon, and they passed sentence on him. We find out that Zedekiah's sons are slaughtered before his eyes. And then we have one of these sad details. Um, Zedekiah's eyes are actually put out. Um, and he is then bound in chains and taken then into Babylon. Um, we then find out, as you continue to read into Second Kings, that Jerusalem is then destroyed, um, and eventually a man named Gedaliah is made the governor of Judah um, to oversee everything that is going on there. And then finally... After all of this takes place, um, at the very end of Second Kings, we are told that in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, who we're going to hear so much about today from Jeremiah 24, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. Um, he spoke kindly to him, gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. And then it is from Jehoiachin's line that we then see the the Davidic line continuing on um, as you go into Ezra and Nehemiah and find out about the rebuilding of the walls and the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. So all that background there from the end of Second Kings, that's what's in that's what's in mind here in Jeremiah twenty four. We're going to see Jeremiah 
talking about those events from Second Kings 24 and 25. He's going to be talking about them ahead of time. Again, the year of Jeremiah 24, we're talking right around 597 BC. That's when these words are spoken. Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, same guy, he's just been carried off into exile in Babylon, and this is the word that Jeremiah is given at that time. So with that context, let's read Jeremiah chapter 24. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metalworkers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, Figs, the good figs very good, and the bad figs very bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem, who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. That's our text for today. That's Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 1 to 10. So, Pastor Stork, we've talked at length about the context that's there in the first part of the first verse, the who's king and what's going on there in Judah, 597 B.C., and is at that time that the Lord shows Jeremiah a vision, these two baskets of figs. Tell us about the vision that Jeremiah is seeing. Yeah, so this vision is similar to what um, Amos sees. And we also have divine visions that some of the other prophets see as well. Um, the reason we can understand this to be a vision and not something that probably would have actually taken place is the fact that no Jew would have ever dared to offer a basket of rotten figs, um, nor would the priests have ever permitted it to be brought before the temple, um, to be brought before the Lord as an offering of the people. Um, And so paying attention to the fact that Jeremiah tells us that this is a vision is, is critical. Um, that these two baskets of figs are representative not of just figs, but are actually representative of the people. Um, the, the figs, the good figs, the very good figs, as he says, um, are representative of the people who have been taken away 
into exile with King Jehoiachin, um, and the bad faiths are the people who have, most of the people who have remained behind or who have been left behind in Jerusalem with Zedekiah. So take us into a little bit more of just the, the imagery of these figs. You, you, this one basket, it's very specific. They're good figs. And then in verse two, it even says like first ripe figs. The other figs so bad, it, I mean, I would say rotten figs, it sounds like. Just what, again, flesh out that image for us a little bit more. Yeah, the, the good figs that um, Jeremiah is mentioning here are probably the, the very early ones. Um, early ones that would have been picked at the beginning of June, which would have been the time that you know, the figs first um, start to come out and are are good enough to, to be able to be eaten. And those good figs aren't just good. They're like a delicacy. Mm. Um, these would have been the, the best you know, fig that you could have had. Um, people would have paid the, the top price for them. It kind of reminds me of when I lived in Colorado. Um, we lived just outside of Palisade, Colorado, which grows these wonderful peaches. And you have these early ones that um, when you just bite into them, the, the flavor is just amazing. And I can imagine that these good things that Jeremiah is describing is along those same lines. These are just the, the most amazing delicacy that you could enjoy. Mm. On the other side of that, you have the bad figs that are so bad. They are so spoiled that they're meant to be thrown away. You're, you're not even expected to really do anything with them. You, there's nothing you can do with them. Um, in fact, it kind of reminds me of the... the the fruit that you find at times where, you know, you pull it out of the refrigerator, it's shriveled up, it's disgusting, and you think, well, maybe I can save a piece or two. These are unsavable. They are good for nothing at all except for being thrown out and trampled under somebody's feet, um, you know, put on the burn pile, if you will, or just to be thrown in the trash can because, there is nothing good in them at all. Yeah, in, in Texas, the place for peaches is is Fredericksburg. That's where you drive for the early the early peaches. So I, I imagine no matter where you are in the country, you can you can pick out the, the orchard in your state or your area. That's where you go when the when the season for that fruit opens. That's when you drive there. You'd be first in line to get that fruit. That's the the good figs that he's talking about. And then the bad figs, very, very well said. You're not going to be able just to cut out the bad spot where maybe your, your kid dropped it on the kitchen floor. There's, there's just nothing, nothing good here at all. It, it amazingly in, in Texas, we've, we've been getting a lot of rain this summer, which is messing up my garden. Normally it's the other way around. We don't get enough rain or it's too hot. That's what messes up the garden. <laughs> but right now there's been so much rain that I've had tomatoes starting to rot. And, and when I see them and they're rotting there and I, I, pick them off and I just throw them down. I don't even bother to, 
to put them in a basket, but that's the kind of fruit that's been put in the second basket. So these are this is what Jeremiah is seeing. These these two baskets, the very best of the figs, the delicacy, you pay top dollar for those, and then the worst of the worst, so bad you you can't even eat them. You would just as you said throw them into the fire, into the into the compost for for me. That's what that's what's going. Okay, those that's the vision that we've got. And then the Lord tells Jeremiah the explanation, and, and you've started with this, uh, Pastor Stork, but but take us into, he starts with the good figs. So what does the Lord have to say about the good figs, beginning in verse 4? Yeah, so it actually turns out a little bit differently than I think you would first expect. Again, going back to the context of um, Jehoiachin and these leaders being taken away, to Babylon, into exile. When you first read through this text, you almost think of what did these people do to be taken into exile? And in some ways, when I first read this text um, a while ago, the first thing that popped into my mind was I actually remembered this wrong. I thought that the people who had been taken into exile were ultimately the bad figs. But in all actuality, we find out that the people who were taken into exile are the good figs in the Lord's eyes. So in verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to me, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. And so we find out that the ones that have been designated good, very good, in fact, are the people who have been taken away into um, exile. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to the land, to this land, the Lord says. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will make them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Hmm. You know, when we judge outwardly those who are taken away, would you not believe that the Jews remaining in Jerusalem to be the favored ones? At least that's what I thought when I first, you know, looked at this text again. Um, and while the ones exiled are seen... Um, you would have thought would have been seen as the bad ones because of their sins and iniquities. Again, we can look back into Second Kings especially, and though the writer of Kings doesn't give us a lot of details about Jehoiachin and his short reign, three months, ten days, what actually happens there, um, we can think that, oh my gosh, why would this have been? But the fact is, the Lord supports these people in order to spare them the horrors of the last siege and the destruction that's going to fall upon Jerusalem. Mm. And so the Lord actually delights in them as a man would rejoice over those very first figs of the season. Um, that these are the ones that by experience and repentance would grow stronger in their faith and in God's word and that he would eventually bring them back to Jerusalem um, as his people to continue 
that promise that he gave um, to send his son to be our savior. Mm. Um, And that even after this harsh judgment, even after sending them off into exile at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, God would do something good from it. There's this really is a very surprising thing. I, I think it's it's got to be particularly in 597 BC. You know, put yourself in the the shoes of the people of Judah and Jerusalem who are there still. They've just watched those people go away, and and they're thinking, okay, well at least I got to stick around here in Jerusalem. And, and the Lord says, I'm actually looking at those people that just left and all the horror that they experienced because no doubt it was a horrible thing. That's what mm-hmm. I'm regarding as the good figs. It's, I, I mean, there's a number of things that, that I think we could talk about here. One, and we've just got about two minutes before the break, Pastor Stork. The first thing that really sticks out to me is is there in verse five, where the Lord says, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah. You know, when when the Lord says that he's going to regard them as good— that's his grace, because we know from the writer of Kings that Jehoiachin was not a good king. He he didn't mm-hmm. seek to uphold the word of the Lord and the worship of the Lord. We know even earlier from Jeremiah, at the end of Jeremiah chapter 22, the prophet has some words to speak about Jeconiah. And in this is just one of those verses in Jeremiah 22, verse 26, the Lord says to Jeconiah, to Jehoiachin, I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born and there you shall die, which certainly happens. So all of that is to say, it's not like the Lord is overlooking the sins of Jehoiachin or or the people who are sent into exile. They committed the sins of idolatry, but by his grace, the Lord chooses to regard them as good and to give them his blessing, which I, I think that's something that we should, you know, it's not like. Jehoiachin was somehow better than Zedekiah. They were both sinful, but the Lord is oh, yeah. gracious. And I think that's such a big point. Oh, definitely. I mean, we we have to look at that, you know, from the perspective of how the Lord not only looks at us, but also looks at other people as well, um, how he regards us, the, the grace that he shows us. You know, we're because of our sinfulness, because of the things that we have done and said and um, have thought and the things that we haven't done, said and thought, uh, you know, we, we deserve the same punishment. We deserve the the same wrath of God um, as others. And yet it is only out of his grace, only out of his mercy um, that he shows us that love and, and that he calls us to be his own. It's it's not because of anything, not because of anything in us. Right. It, it is all the Lord's grace, and he's going to show that grace to those exiles taken in 597 BC. We'll pick that thought up more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron with Pastor Tim Stork talking Jeremiah chapter 24 this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, June 25th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 1 to 10 with Pastor Tim Stork. He serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield, Michigan. Pastor Stork, prior to the break, we were talking about these good figs, the one who, the ones whom the Lord regards as good, these ones just sent into exile in 597 BC, a surprising thing, certainly, to King Zedekiah there in Jerusalem and the other residents of Jerusalem, that those sent off into exile were the ones that are, in fact, going to receive the blessing. Another thing I want to pick up from what you were saying earlier is that what what the Lord does, the way that he ends up regarding them as good by his grace, is that it is through that line that he preserves the promise of the Savior, that promise of the seed, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, that we know the devil is constantly attacking throughout the Old Testament. The Lord is always preserving that line. And and just not to lose sight of that, I think that's so important whenever we come across it in the Old Testament to make sure we see that, that the reason the Lord is gracious to his people over and over again is ultimately so that he can bring his son into the world as our Savior and be gracious to all people in him. Yes. Most definitely, um, you know, and and that's exactly what we see or going on in Jeremiah twenty four, um, and then is again you read the history into Ezra and Nehemiah, and see the rebuilding of the walls and the um, events that are taking place there, and you can see then, you know, really the miracle that takes place as God continues this line um, all the way through until you get to Mary and you get to Joseph and then ultimately the, the birth of the birth of Jesus. Um, you know, that's one of those wonderful things when you can sit down and look at the gospels and spend time looking at the genealogies. Um, one of my professors back at seminary, Dr. Gard, he would spend a lot of time um, talking about First and Second Chronicles and how easy it is for us to skip over some of those historical documents and skipping over all the names and the events that are taking place and, and regarding them as just history. You know, really, what, what do we need it for? But really, you can see through all of these different events and all of these different people, how God's grace has passed down over time and ultimately coming into, you know, the the birth of Christ and his work of saving us from our sin. It's, it really is, I don't know how better to put it, it really is miraculous to see how God continues working through all of these sinful men and women to bring about the salvation of mankind. Yeah, I think miraculous is a, a great word for it to to imagine that, you know, Jehoiachin of all of the the kings that are there during Jeremiah's ministry. So such a short reign that he doesn't even get mentioned at the beginning of the book that it is through the line of Jehoiachin that the the line of the Christ is preserved is is miraculous. And again, it this must be God's doing then. The salvation that he wins has to come from him because it's certainly not the way that you or I or any sinner would have chosen to do it. But this is the way the Lord does it. And I think that that ties in nicely to the to the next point that we can make is that in these verses where the Lord is talking about the good figs, these exiles that have been sent, 
over and over again, he's the one that's that's acting. I, I mean, I think it starts probably in verse five. It, you know, I will regard, I've sent, I've set my eyes. Take us into the the Lord's actions that we see over and over again in these verses. Yeah, that's that's a perfect place to go. Um, to be reminded that the Lord is the one who is doing the work here, um, which is a good reminder for us as well that the Lord is the one who is bringing us into the faith, who is keeping us in the faith. And, and so we see that here as well, where in verse 5 he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. That in all actuality, it's not Nebuchadnezzar who sent them away. The Lord is the one who has sent them away. And then he goes on in verse 6. He says, I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. And then in verse 7, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. I mean, Time and again, again, depending on how you want to break this down, you have five or six times um, that you can see that God is the one who is doing the action. All of this is under his authority, um, caring for these people, setting his eyes on them for their good, even though what Jehoiachin and the 10,000-plus people who are taken away into exile may have seen with their own eyes and said, oh my gosh, this is the most horrible thing to ever happen to us. God is going to use it for their good. Um, that God is the one who is going to bring them back to the land. That he is going to build them up. That he will plant them. Um, that he is going to then give them that heart to know that he is the Lord. Um, and that they will be his people, and that they that God will be their God. It, it reminds me of um, you know that language in Luther's small catechism in the third article of the creed that we're reminded that God the Holy Spirit is the one who does all of those wonderful things for us. That He is the one who calls us, He sanctifies us, He enlightens us, He keeps us in the one true faith, and. It's very similar to what happens here. God is the one who does all the work. He is the one who gets all the credit. Mm. In verse 7, one of the works that God does here is that he's going to give his people, you mentioned this, a heart to know that I am the Lord. What's the the significance of that heart language that's brought out here? Yeah, um, it reminds us of the the new covenant that God... um, is going to make with these his people. Um, the fact that if you go back to, um, now I'm having a, a blank spot in my mind, um, that if you go in and you, you look at the scriptures, the fact that God has made a new covenant with them, um, that he has made a promise to them, um, and it reminds me as well that, you know, he gives them this new heart. Um, 
It also reminds me of the words of the offertory, um, that he creates a new heart in us as well. Um, that these people that he has called to be his own, um, and he will be their God. That this heart to to know who they to know who he is, um, and that it will be continually renewed. Um, that they will be reminded that God is the one who has saved us. He is the one who has shown his grace to us, um, and there is no other God but the Lord. Yeah, that, that new covenant language that you're talking about, Pastor Stork, I think you were probably thinking about Jeremiah chapter 31, which where, where the yeah. Lord promises, you know, that the days are coming when the new covenant is going to be given. And he talks about writing his law on the heart, right? And, and so I think that that's the the connection that's there. And and even too, what the, the Lord says after that, they shall be my people and I will be their God. That's Exodus language right there. That's the the refrain that the Lord repeats over and over again in the Exodus. And it was earlier in the book of Jeremiah, back in chapter 16, where the Lord gave his, you know, those, a lot of Jeremiah has been a lot of judgment, <laughs> but there are these glimmers of yeah. hope, right? And one of the glimmers of hope mm-hmm. in chapter 16 was that there was going to be a day that would come where the people weren't going to reference the Exodus from Egypt as the great event of salvation, but they're going to talk about the bringing back from the exile as the, the great event of salvation. And, and it seems like we've got another reference to that here as Jeremiah is preaching hope for those who are, who have been taken into exile already, that the Lord will keep his promise to bring the Christ into the world through this line. And, and so take heart. And, and one thing it, you said it earlier, and you mentioned it so quickly, but I, I, it made a, an impact on me. You talked about how, it, as the Lord is, is doing all these things, that he's the one that sent away from this place into exile, not Nebuchadnezzar. That had to be such a hopeful word when those exiles finally heard it, you know, in between 597 and 586, and then 586 afterwards, as those exiles were living there in Babylon, to know that even this happened at the Lord's hand, that he was the one responsible for it and not Nebuchadnezzar had to be a hopeful word for them that they would know that, yes, even in the midst of this exile and all this suffering that we're going through, the Lord still is at work. That's a that's a really hopeful word, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, again, knowing that the events that are taking place here. I mean, I can't imagine what it must have been like during that time. I mean, that's always hard for us to to think about what life must have been like and how terrible things were with Nebuchadnezzar ruling um, over them and the, the struggles that were taking place. Um, and yet to know that the Lord is the one who is taking care of his people, mm-hmm. um, that the Lord is the one who is sending them away from this place, then to lift them up. Um, he is the one who lowers them down, but then lifts them up again to show his grace, to show his glory. Um, the people would know ultimately that he is, he is God. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not God. Zedekiah is not God. Jehoiakim's not God. We're not God. He is. Um, and that he is the one who can take these bad events 
and and make them out for not only for the good of his own people, but for his glory as well. Mm. I mean, I think within this rather, again, surprising text that it is the people who are sent into exile whom the Lord regards as good we see a, a pattern that, that the Lord establishes throughout his word that he takes us into death in order to bring us into life. And, and I think that we're seeing it here. And ultimately, that's that's what we see in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Definitely. Um, again, we we can see that with uh, with our Lord on, on Holy Week, especially um, throughout his in throughout his ministry, ultimately, but especially on Holy Week. I mean, we can maybe imagine a little bit what the devastation the disciples and the women were feeling, especially on Good Friday, when here they see their Lord, who is God, and has, you know, performed these miracles. He has shown to the people that he is God, and yet this one who is king of Israel, who is king of all creation, is crucified on a cross. And how devastating that must have been to him on Good Friday, thinking, oh my gosh, what happened to our Lord? You know, what now? And the joy that must have been there on Easter morning, not only for Mary when she first beholds Jesus, um, there in the garden when he calls her by name, but then when he appears in the upper room, and especially that word of forgiveness mm. that Jesus speaks to the disciples when he comes into the room and he proclaims peace to them. I mean, it, these men, other than John, had abandoned him. They, they had, you know, tucked tail and run because they were afraid of everything that was play, taking place, and yet... Jesus comes into their presence and forgives them their sins and lifts them up and then, of course, later sends them out into the world to proclaim his love, his forgiveness, his grace to the four corners of the world. Um, and again, we, we see that work of the Lord's hand throughout history from Jesus' resurrection and his ascension and sending out the disciples into the world and the continuing of that preaching of that word even today. I mean, remember the the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and when Jesus comes up beside them and starts that conversation and, and they, they can't believe he doesn't know what's going on and you know, Jesus is playing along with them and, and they they you know empty their hearts there and, and say, you know, we we had hoped that he was the one, but but he's now he's dead. You know, I mean and, and that that like how could how could good come of this and yet and then mm-hmm. Jesus preaches that wonderful sermon you know it was necessary that these things happen and and that's what we yeah. still proclaim today you know Christ crucified as Paul says that that what looks to be the worst death possible in fact through that the lord works the salvation of the world i think it's that it's that same pattern again that we're seeing here in Jeremiah mm-hmm. 24 that's evident throughout the scriptures yeah, I would, you know, the other thing, talking about the, the Emmaus disciples for just a moment, you know, the fact that when Jesus opens their mind, he takes them back through the Old Testament, hmm. um, and how he takes them through Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. And I wonder, you know, 
as he opens his mind or as he opens their minds to understand the Old Testament scriptures, if they finally came, you know, as they finally came to understand, this is all about Jesus. Yeah. Um, how amazing that must have been. That must have been one of the most amazing Bible, Old Testament Bible classes you could have ever attended. That's right. Yeah. I've, I've often envied the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then later when Jesus does that again, that, to, oh man, what an amazing thing. Although I, I will say that I, I think what, what you and I, what we have the opportunity to do as Christians still today is, is certainly informed by that, that we can look at oh, a yeah. text like Jeremiah 24 and, and see in that, that whole pattern that the Lord establishes. And, and who knows, maybe, maybe on the road to Emmaus, Jeremiah 24 was one of the texts that the Lord used to, to show the necessity of the death and resurrection that, that Jesus mm-hmm. accomplished. Yep. So Pastor Stork, let's, let's move. We got about 10 minutes here in the morning and, and we still have that basket of bad figs that's sitting there that the Lord needs to explain to Jeremiah as well. In the last three verses of our text, what, it, what's going on with the basket of bad figs now in contrast to the basket of good figs. Okay. So beginning at verse eight, the Lord speaks again to Jeremiah, but thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. It will make them a horror of all the kingdoms of the earth to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. I will send sword and famine and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. So as we mentioned before, the the figs are so bad that they're not able to be used for anything. They're not able to be saved for, you know, any type of use at all. The the only thing they're good for is is to be thrown out. And the Lord says that basically here, like the bad figs that are so bad, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials in the remnant of Jerusalem who are in the land. And we also know that there are some who are going to be and are in Egypt as well, um, that they will be a horror to the kingdoms of the earth. Um, Zedekiah and the people remaining in Jerusalem are going to continue to persist in doing their evil. Um, and it's because of that that the Lord is going to render them more like those disgusting figs, ultimately by hardening their hearts. Right. And I mean, and again, that that's, seems unexpected, I think, to the people who are there, that this is going to end up being the place of, of destruction. But what ends up happening, is, as you said, is it's just going to be a hardening of heart where they become more secure in their sin, whereas through this exile, the Lord is actually going to work to, to break the hearts of stone that are there in his people. And, and so the those who remain surprised to the people, they're the ones that become these bad figs who just continue in their idolatry, who end up rebelling again against Nebuchadnezzar. Again, all that, that historical background we talked about at the beginning, that's what happens. And and this too is the Lord's doing. Verse nine, I will make them all these horrible things, horror, reproach, a byword, a taunt, a curse. I will send sword, famine, pestilence. This too is the Lord's doing. Take us into to what the Lord promises there in verses nine and 10. Yeah, I mean, it's not 
definitely not a good promise compared to what we saw earlier in Chapter 24. I mean, here, what, five different times, five different ways the Lord says that he is going to make these people, um, his, his people that have rejected him, um, horrible thing towards the, the kingdom of the kingdom of the earth. Um, they're going to be considered a whore. Um, they are going to be seen as a reproach. Um, you know, they're going to be a, a, a scorn to the nation. Um, they're going to be a byword. I'm trying to, to think of all of the other things that he mentions to them. Um, they're, they're going to be a taunt, a, a sharp word to the people. I mean, it's just, there's nothing good here. Um, and ultimately, then he says, because of this, I will send sword and famine and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and to their fathers. And, and there again is that reminder of what the Lord had already done for their fathers. Um, there's that promise that we're reminded of back in not only Abraham, the promise of the land, but then the fulfillment of that when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness and finally led them into the promised land. That ultimately God was the one who had given them that land, who had given it to their fathers, and yet they've rejected it. Um, they rejected the promise that God had given to them and instead followed after their own hearts. Um, in the uh, Towards Leviticus 26, um, where we have the blessings and the curses, um, Moses writes in Leviticus chapter 26, he says, for those who um, curse God, he writes this, he says, I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven, and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But even going back to Leviticus, the Lord is already using this language of sword and famine and pestilence um, that for those in the old covenant, if you do not follow my word, this is going to be the end result. Yeah, it's 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 certainly not pretty. And and I mean, the sword, famine, pestilence, it, it's, you know, if the sword doesn't get you, the famine will get you. And if the famine doesn't get you, the pestilence will. So one way or another, the, the destruction is complete. And I appreciate you bringing out, you know, what the Lord says there at the end, that this is the land I did give to them and their fathers. Think of all the things the Lord has done for so long and how many prophets he sent to call them back to repentance. And over and over again, they refuse. This is what happens when when you fall away from the Lord, from the true worship of the Lord, to follow after your own stubborn heart? This is what you choose for yourself, and this is what the Lord then, sadly, gives to His people to show them this is what life looks like without Me, and it and it's not a pretty picture. Now, of course, Jeremiah twenty four is not the only thing that the prophet preaches, and and it was actually in a previous chapter where where the the Lord gives Jeremiah a word to speak to Zedekiah. And says, you know, 
if you want out of this, you better just surrender to the Babylonians because, and that fits in with what we've got here, that it ends up being those who go into exile into Babylon, whom the Lord shows his grace to, brings them through death into life. Pastor Stork, with about three minutes left on the morning, here in Jeremiah 24, certainly a, a, a word of hope and a word of condemnation put side by side in the context of 597 BC and all that's happening to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. For us as Christians today, how do we make use of this text? How does this point us to Christ crucified and risen for us? You know, when I look at the context of the world that we live in today, the the struggles that we have, um, the the ups and downs that we're facing as uh, as a Christian church, um, and the things that you know we we're dealing with on a on an almost daily basis. Um, the first thing that I want to be reminded of is the Lord is the one who has called us. He has made us his. Um, as I mentioned before, this text reminds me really of, you know, the Lord is the one who's done all the work. He has called us to be his. He has enlightened us. He's strengthened us. He's, and he keeps us in that one true faith um, that he has allowed us the be a blessing to this world, um, and that we continue to, to hope and trust in him in the face of everything that is going on, and realizing that even out of the bad in this world and the, the struggles that we face, the Lord can work good. Um, many of us see this on a daily basis, that out of bad, the Lord does work good. We see his grace, and we see his mercy. Unfortunately, we also see here in this text those who reject the Lord and who reject his promises. But I think for us, it also gives us a a renewed desire and zeal to preach the word, that there is always hope. On this side of heaven, on on this side of death, there is always hope. Um, We have our Lord's word, we have his promises, the desire to renew and, and give life to sinners. And, and that includes those sinners that, you know, have known God's word, have rejected it, but that word of forgiveness is there for them as well. And so as the church, as Christians, we should be willing to share that saving word with all those around us, that they would know about how much God cares for us, how much he loves us, and how much he desires us to be his people. Pastor Tim Stork is the pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield, Michigan, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 1 to 10. Pastor Stork, thanks for being our guest today. Well, thank you, Pastor Apple. I really appreciate it. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah, comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the new app to send a message to us with the open mic feature up to a 60 second message. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.